For those tuning in for the first time, The HQ is a podcast serial produced by CHA Learning. CHA Learning is the professional development division of Healthcare Can and is uniquely Canada's only fully online learning provider serving all of healthcare. So please check out more about our learning programs and services after this episode and discover how we collaborate with health leaders and organizations to empower healthcare professionals with the knowledge, skills, and relationships to impact health system improvement. I'm Dale Sherbeck, and welcome to the HQ Podcast, where we dive into healthcare issues and topics from the perspective of its people and discuss them with those that are leading and impacting the health system. Together, we'll explore these topics as we continue to learn together. So welcome listeners to a new year and our exciting third season of the HQ. We have another exciting year in front of us here, which we're going to kick off today with our conversation about structural stigma in the healthcare system as it relates to those who live with mental health or substance use challenges. Structural stigma impacts our ability to provide high quality, equitable care and service to this population across all parts of the health system and requires meaningful systemic change. Over the past few years, the topics of mental health, mental illness, and substance use have become much more prominent in the media and in our day-to-day lives. Most of us, myself included, have been touched by this subject personally or through someone we know. And yet mental health stigma continues to persist such that many people still feel shame or fear at the thought of sharing or discussing their mental health struggles. Not surprisingly then, this societal stigma can cause people to become isolated and or avoid getting the help they need. You might expect that within our healthcare system, that understanding, acceptance and resources would abound and that it would be easy for people to get the care and services they need. Unfortunately, that is not always the case. And that is the topic for today's podcast, the structural stigma that exists within our own healthcare system. For example, Does a person with a documented history of substance abuse disorder receive the same care from healthcare professionals as would someone who does not? Does someone who's looking for mental health care in an emergency department receive the same compassion as someone who presents with a broken bone? Often the answers are no. And why not? What is getting in the way of equitable care and unbiased treatment? And how do these structures and biases impact the health outcomes of those with mental health challenges? So let's start the year with an open and honest talk about the structural barriers and how we can begin to change them at a systemic level and improve care for all. To have this incredibly important conversation, I'm truly honored to be joined by Dr. Javid Sukera. Dr. Sukera is the Chair of Psychiatry at the Institute of Living and the Chief of Psychiatry at Hartford Hospital in Hartford, Connecticut. He's also an Associate Clinical Professor of Psychiatry at the Yale School of Medicine and Associate Professor in the Department of Psychiatry at the University of Connecticut School of Medicine. In his role as the Chair-in-Chief, Dr. Sukara is responsible for advancing the Institute of Living's clinical research and educational missions, including training programs in psychiatry, psychology, social work, and nursing, as well as several endowed research centers. He is an internationally recognized health professions education researcher and thought leader. His research program explores novel approaches to addressing stigma and bias among health professionals, and he has also been involved in advocacy and cross-sectoral work in education, policing, and community services. 
He's on the editorial advisory board for the Canadian Medical Association Journal and the deputy editor for the Journal of Perspectives on Medical Education. So hi, Javid, and welcome to the HQ. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Uh, thank you again, Javid, for joining me for this hugely important conversation as we kick off our new season here. So perhaps we can start the conversation with some discussion of definitions and context. We're using a lot in the, in, even in the introduction that I provided, just to make sure that I guess we're all on the same page about what we're talking about. Um, and this, even though we're going to focus on structural stigma today, maybe we can even back that up a little bit earlier and talk about, you know, mental illness, what is it, and substance use related stigma in healthcare, and what do we mean when we say it's structural? Yeah, so it's good to start with a shared understanding of what some of these words mean. The word stigma basically means a mark or something that gets attached to something to signify it as different or not maybe normal. So the term stigma, I think, in today's world is used interchangeably with um, terms like discrimination. If we replace the word stigma with the word discrimination, I think it would mean the same thing. Mm -hmm. Different forms of stigma or discrimination can occur at different levels. So they can occur at a structural level, which is when they get embedded in law, policy, practice, things in society that exist in a system outside of us as individuals. Mm -hmm. The other form is interpersonal. So that's how um, this form of discrimination against in individuals with mental illness or substance use challenges um, exists as stereotypes, as labeling, as prejudicial attitudes and behavior that we um, can participate in, either intentionally or unintentionally, as individuals. And then the third is when it gets internalized um, to us ourselves. And the best example of that is if someone experiences suffering um, and they feel as though it's their fault or they internalize a sense of discrimination or prejudice against themselves, um, that's a, another form of stigma that we would call internalized. There's a lot wrapped up in there. So um, I'm just wondering in, in terms of the language itself, so, and, and, and I'm self-aware of this because of, you know, even in preparing the introduction that I was, uh, that I've shared at the beginning here about the use of the language around illness um, or challenges um, or even, you know, the, the, the way that it, uh, the dichotomy between health and illness, right? So, are, you know, are we, are we promoting stigma by talking about mental illness as an illness or or is it better to talk about mental health, sort of, or, or are there right ways to sort of use both? Yeah, so it's another not so straightforward answer um, mm -hmm. that I'll try to give in a, in a simpler way. Um, mental health is something that exists that all of us have. Traditionally, we've used the term mental illness to describe um, someone's mental health being disordered or challenging or creating problems for them. The idea of mental illness is then further critiqued by some who suggest um, that there's been over-medicalization of mental health struggles, which maybe intrinsically aren't illness or abnormal. Mm -hmm. So 
within the terms, there are different laden beliefs, but ultimately um, the two different terms that I sometimes use are mental illness in the context of modern medicine, psychiatric practice, uh, which refers to a degree of mental health challenges that uh, has a neurobiological etiology, mm -hmm. um, or the term mental health challenges, which I think can be more inclusive um, to different forms of healthy or unhealthy coping or distress, which isn't necessarily a medical illness. Fair. And since many of us aren't physicians, it's probably not for us to sort of <laughs> medicalize um, some of the, the discussions and some of that respect and just to be more respective of, of the challenges that some may face. I think so, but I, I do think it's an important distinction for everybody to know, right? Mm -hmm. Because people might say, well, I have a problem with my mental health. We all have a problem sometimes with our mental health, right? If yeah. we're dealing with stress, there's a normal reaction to that. But understanding the difference between day-to-day -day struggle and the kinds of challenges or struggles uh, or sometimes illnesses that then become a barrier to us actualizing our potential is important because then that gives us signals where we should be leaning into it for ourselves or leaning it into it for people we care about, making sure that they get access to help that should be available for them. Thank you. That's very helpful. So... That sort of brings me to the next or topic of conversation here. So as, as our listeners can appreciate, a frequent topic of conversation here on the HQ has been one about equity, diversity and inclusion and increasingly belonging and, and access, as you describe. Um, so might you share your thoughts on this through the lens of mental health and stigma? So this this is my jam. This is what I, I talk about and think about all the time. So I'm going to do my best to start the conversation and we can unpack it a little bit as we chat more. Sure. Um, discrimination, prejudice, exists throughout society. And it can exist in different ways, in messy, complex ways. Early in my career, I realized as, as a Canadian holding up the Canadian health system on a pedestal, Mm -hmm. That despite my interests in all forms of discrimination and inequity, the, one of the biggest inequitable things in Canada is the discriminatory way we treat people with mental illness or mental health challenges, particularly in healthcare. Because I watched how people who struggled with mental illness weren't given equitable treatment compared to people with physical illness from our healthcare system. But what we also know is that the way that this happens isn't too different um, from the way that other forms of discrimination happen. So, for example, um, someone doesn't speak English as their first language. Well, they're not going to get access to high-quality healthcare in Canada. If someone speaks English with accent, an accent or accented English, they're not going to have the same access to economic and vocational prosperity in Canada. So all these different forms of discrimination are intersecting, and they have to do with a concept um, that we, we may all have heard of called intersectionality, which highlights that it's not just the issue of prejudice that's a problem, it's the combination of prejudice plus power mm -hmm. that's a problem. So everything is contextualized. Um, in one context, something that might be discrimination might not be in another context. 
In other contexts, if we think about the way that anti-Indigenous racism and colonialism shows up in Canadian healthcare, it's a combination of anti-Indigenous racism and mental health illness stigma that creates compounded barriers to accessing um, treatment and therapy that's culturally affirming for people. So the issue and the topic at its core speaks to the fact that all of us can carry the role of being a stigmatizer and someone who might experience stigmatization at the same time. Um, and that recognition can help us change the conversation about discrimination or EDI or DEI away from the idea of labels and um, uh, social identities as um, markers of difference and towards the fact that all of us, by virtue of our shared human identity, can experience various forms of both stigmatization and um, be people who enact that stigmatization through our participation in society at the same time. Yeah, so, um, and I appreciate this is your jam. So, uh, you know, I'm, I'm happy to get a little bit sticky in this, but um, it's, so you, you talk about the, right, the importance of power in, in this, I think, as a differentiator or how it impacts, I guess, those people who, who don't have the power in, in those relationships. So what is it about healthcare specifically then that perhaps heightens or exacerbates that power dynamic that, that, that leads to the different kinds of stigma that we're sort of talking about or the access issues? So at a very basic level in healthcare in Canada and in the United States and many other places, uh, we do not adequately fund mental health compared to physical health. The Canada Health Act um, didn't define all forms of mental health treatment as medically necessary. It only defined medically necessary mental health treatment as treatment that's delivered by psychiatrists as medical doctors. So we baked into um, the Canadian healthcare system, a significant inequity. If we underfund a form of care in a system where we're overfunding another form of care, that creates and exacerbates that inequity. It amplifies it. And therefore, um, that has implications for people who are struggling, who are suffering, and who can act. But in another way, if we shift the lens to a way that mental health care operates within the system, um, for example, psychiatric care is also marginalized within mm -hmm. um, community health care. The payment and uh, reimbursement system, which is a primarily fee-for-service system in many places, it incentivizes procedural fixes much more than it does creating space for healing, which is what a lot of us do as psychiatrists. For example, I'm a child and adolescent psychiatrist. A fee-for-service system, um, up until very recently, didn't actually provide remuneration for child psychiatrists to talk to families on the phone, which is an intrinsic part of the care that we need to be able to provide. Mm -hmm. But if the system doesn't actually remunerate for that time, it then creates and exacerbates those inequities. Yeah, and I appreciate you sharing, you know, that concrete sort of an example, I think, as we certainly start to talk about what's, you know, what needs to be done. So maybe leading into that, um, you know, you know, there's so many of us, I guess, that would like to be fixers within the system. 
um, within society writ large, um, you know, we, we feel, you know, this is an issue that we should do something about. But having said that, you know, people want to jump in with both feet to fix things before they really understand the, the, the core of the issue or the, or the topic. And I think you're, you're, you're starting to open that up for us a bit. But, you know, how would you define, I guess, the issue or the problem statement, you know, as we sort of put our project management sort of hats on um, and start thinking about um, what we would do to improve the system and, and access? Yes, yeah, so I think this is really important to be practical about it because, you know, in my career as a clinician scientist, as an MD, PhD, I think a lot of the things we talk about in social science can become too abstract. Mm -hmm. um, and we have to think about producing knowledge that actually makes change happen, mobilizing that knowledge into practical change, which is what I think of as my role as a leader um, in a system in my new role, for example, where I'm the person responsible for everything that happens in all 125 of our beds and all the care that we deliver and organize and finance. So I think the roadmap for us, if we want to think about how we can be a part of change, is to really start by holding up the mirror, by asking ourselves how we're doing uh, when it comes to discrimination and inequity or disparities in care and outcome, access um, and outcome for people with mental health and substance use challenges compared to not. Once we hold up that mirror, we are going to be faced with some dissonance, right? It's gonna be uncomfortable for us to recognize that. But mm -hmm. from there, it's about critically reflecting on what we can do in our role, in our context, to actually change something. And that could include changing our behavior, but to address structural stigma, it has to move from just changing our behavior to thinking about ways to change the system itself, changing policy, changing how we design things, changing how we create systems. And the secret sauce to that, from both my experience and research, is the concept of co-design. So it's not people who are leaders in Canadian healthcare doing it in our beautiful um, glass steel towers or community settings. It's us co-designing it with the people who our system is purported to serve. Because we can't just grab their hands and lead them towards something better. We need to kind of work hand in hand to co-create a better system that's more inclusive and that creates less unequal outcomes. Yeah, and I'm certainly a, a big proponent, proponent of, of co-design and, um, you know, and, you know, in, in all aspects of our work. Um, so, I guess so. I, maybe, maybe I, in terms of asking the next question, maybe I'm going back a tiny bit. But um, so, because you've talked about putting up the mirror for ourselves and sort of evaluating who we are, what we're doing in the system as a whole. But I think one of the, the you know the challenges, right? The um, you know. It, is you know how do you how do you hold up a mirror if you don't know I guess that you need to see yourself right if in the context of bias um, you know and think in the previous example you gave like most of us don't go out with the intention to do harm or to even to discriminate um, um, so a lot of these things are embedded within us or um, have been learned when we were children ourselves um, so how does a person become aware of one's biases 
um, and sort of those hidden components of ourselves if you don't even know they're there, I guess, I, I, I'm not sure I'm asking that correctly, but I mean, maybe that is part of the mirror metaphor that you're working with. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that is the practical question we ask ourselves. Well, we have to start by holding up the mirror. How do we do that? Or, or what are the ways that we can be more active and intentional about that? So the first thing I want to say is um, we actually designed uh, a course with the Mental Health Commission on mental health structural stigma in healthcare, which is an e-learning course and developed in partnership with the CHA Learning that um, is designed to do that. So it's designed around something called transformative education. Most education we get or people get as leaders fills our cups. Transformative education is throwing the cup against the wall and baking up the pieces. <laughs> and so we were very intentional about designing this course in a way that was more reflective and looked at how we hold up the mirror, process what we're learning, build skills to change the world from there. The, the best way to do that, other than taking well-designed courses online, is from my research and practice to build cultures in our workplace where we're actively cultivating and normalizing um, dissent and feedback. So it's asking ourselves as leaders, how am I normalizing and embedding into my standard practice um, the invitation of feedback, both anonymized and non-anonymized, which is important, right? Sometimes, some cultures, there isn't enough safety where people can give you authentic feedback. So making sure that there's different mechanisms for it, but continuously checking in with yourself and your teams on how you're doing, and then responding to the feedback in a constructive way to co-create change. So let me sort of describe that as a leader. Yes. In my system, every single meeting we have, we always end it with five minutes to spare to get feedback about how the meeting went, whether or not there were any things that were said or shared that anybody didn't get a chance to say. Um, and in the moment, checking in about how well we're doing while inviting opportunity for feedback um, later if people want to give it. When I give talks, I always try to carve out time, you know, not as people are dashing out of the door, but intentional time to say, how did this go? Be intentional about what, what people are sharing and how it can make this better. That also means that leaders should be intentional about communicating the constructive kinds of feedback that helps inform change. So when we hear in my system feedback, Every six months, we do an engagement survey, and we always put out information about what we've heard that led to what kind of change. Now, that's really key. If you want to cultivate a feedback culture, you then also have to demonstrate good faith ways that you're responsive to that feedback. And I've seen organizations do that in different ways. But if you don't respond to feedback with transparency, then that will promote disengagement, and people won't tell you what they 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 really feel. And so the, the mirror really requires holding up the mirror to ourselves as individuals, so inviting feedback about what we do as leaders, but also then holding up the mirror to our system and making sure that the people who work through our system, particularly patients and their caregivers, um, and the people who work in the system have regular opportunities to share that feedback. Thank you, Jeffy. I think that's it's brilliant. And, I, you know, in some ways it's, you know, some of it's, it would seem to be common sense, but I don't think, we, you know, we don't follow the common sense because we're in a rush to be busy and get on to our next things. But 
but it does seem like the perfect anecdote antidote to unintentional harm right would be to be intentional in doing good <laughs> um yeah. right well i'm going to i'm going to add another layer to this and this might be prickly so i think i'll give a disclaimer okay i don't think all leaders are really good at this i've seen in my career case studies of some of the best and worst, worst examples of leadership i've also seen leaders who say that they invite feedback but then really punish and sanction people for critical feedback that might be constructive to make things better. And so I do think that if there's a leader out there that's intentional about this, that wants to be, you know, hard in hand, good faith about holding up the mirror to themselves and their systems, then they also have to interrogate the ways in which feedback makes them uncomfortable, mm -hmm. conscious, um, feel threatened because if they can't navigate that very human experience of critical feedback, then um, they, they risk making the problem even worse. Yeah. So to move past, I guess the, uh, I, well, you, I, I, I'm afraid to say this cause uh, you know, this, you, I'm going to screw this up, but moving past our amygdala <laughs> and our fight and flight reactions, um, right to something that is a bit more um, or cerebral, but yeah, I think it's the term that people use. I, I really dislike it, but the term fragility is mm -hmm. is the term that I think of because you know it really is back to the the job of being a leader is a gift. It's a privilege of a, of or an honor. If you have structural power or structural leadership, um, the more that you care about what you do, the more it's normal and human for it to hurt if someone critiques it, the more it might feel invalidating. Mm -hmm. But that's a responsibility that the leader carries to not let that vulnerability hijack um, themselves and their organization's opportunity for growth. So we talk about a growth mindset, right? Learning through growth and tension. Yeah. And the research we've done with the Mental Health Commission, the way that organizations do this effectively is they anticipate disruption. They anticipate dissonance and they actively create space to process and heal from some of the wounds that, that holding up the mirror might uh, inflict. Yeah, and I, I, and I think, you know, the, there's the, a lot of wisdom in, in what you're sharing. I mean, because I think, it, it comes to, I guess, the, the the archetype, I guess, that we hold up as to what a leader is or should be, um, you know, and one which is, you know, impervious to mistakes or being fragile or um, uh, being comfortable with dissonance or, right, um, or hurting, right? I just that these beacons of strength and um, um, that should be impervious, right, to, um, to the, yeah, to that kind of disruption. So I think it is, you're really asking us to also re rethink, I guess, um, the, the, uh, the lens through which uh, we should see our leaders uh, and be leaders. Yeah. And, and to be attuned to how that works on an individual and a structural level. Yeah. So we can experience vulnerability as leaders. When we hold up the mirror, we can struggle with the, the knowledge that we might have flaws or make mistakes, but within systems, 
Um, we also have to then build structures and governance processes that um, protect ourselves from silencing voices of dissent, that recognize the ways that power and hierarchy influence people in those systems. And I think the, the ultimate lesson from some of our research is we need to disrupt this dichotomization between us and them. Mm -hmm. Because those of us that work in the system are also the people that seek care from the same system. There's a thin sliver of fate separating us from someone in their most vulnerable state seeking care in an emergency. And so we can't just think of ourselves as somehow separate from it because we work in it or because we're leaders within it. And then the same within organizations, right? In complex organizations. Now, for me as a leader, people will say, well, what are you going to do? And my response is, well, what are we going to do? Because there's nothing I can do in isolation uh, from what we can do collectively. So let's think about what all of us can co-construct to make the change happen. Thank you. So, um, so working on that sliver, right? There's, there's not a lot that divides um, many of us in terms of fate or, or events in our lives, right? Um, from those that um, can provide care and, and those that will ultimately need um, care for mental health or substance use challenges. So, you know, and if not us, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's, not that many degrees of separation between us and somebody else that's in our family or close so social circles that have been touched by this. Um, so if, it, you know, if we can all get behind this and believe this is important, um, that we want to make these sorts of changes and should make these changes that it's, it's, it's imperative to ourselves and to those that we care about most, what's actually stopping us from doing this? So I think that is a really important question, because if you think about it, we have anti-stigma campaigns. We've had them for years, right? Mm -hmm. We've done a lot better at bringing the conversation out of the shadows, trying to talk about it, trying to change attitudes. So then we should wonder, well, why aren't we moving the needle enough? You know, why haven't we created it? And that's why I was always interested in the shift towards thinking about structural forms of stigma. The amount of time and energy we've invested into stigma reduction or anti-stigma campaigns, they're great, but they're not really moving the needle. And I think the reason is that we haven't talked enough about the ways that stigma gets baked into our system in structural ways, the way that it's baked into funding, what decisions we make about funding, or legislation, or policy, um, how it's baked into how we design healthcare systems. So, for example, most times people are in distress isn't between the hours of nine to five, yet our system is designed to be a nine to five, Monday to Friday system. So even though we all know that this is a problem, I'm sure uh, a vast majority of Canadians have been touched in some shape or form by um, this, this uh, form of suffering. The reason that we're not making enough change is because we haven't changed the system and to do so, we really need to think about coupling the work we do in healthcare with advocacy um, and policy change, partnering with legislators, decision makers, uh, advocates, and communities um, to, to push for um, that kind of structural change. Yeah, so as much as we all want to be the change that we want to see, 
um, you know, operating within a, a dysfunctional uh, system um, will continue to lead us to many of the same outcomes. It will, but that doesn't mean that we can't make change in our sphere either. Mm -hmm. So, for example, healthcare leaders in most jurisdictions do have access to some form of resources. Um, some of that is fixed that you can't change. Some of that is more discretionary, but we think about how we use those resources in a zero-sum way, right? If it's $100, that if we use this much for this, then we won't be using this much for that. I really think we need to shift away from this kind of scarcity mindset towards thinking about a return on investment. And let's think about um, young adults as an example. Mm -hmm. If someone who's in the you know the early stages of their life experiences a challenge with their mental health and we invest into them getting access to treatment the return on investment is astronomical mm -hmm. so within our systems you know yes let's lobby the government let's change the law let's create and and fight for investment with with no uh, relent relentlessly fight for investment but let's also think about what we're doing in our system how are we organizing and designing our system? How do we define our outcomes? To which degree are patients and young people meaningfully involved in those outcomes? What time do we start? What are our triage processes? How do we take referrals? How are we leveraging digital technology? And then what are we spending our money on? Um, how much are we thinking about the well-being of the healthcare workforce? And uh, people who work in the systems access to the services we're talking about as well. I think there's a lot that we can still do within our, our spheres of influence to make change irrespective of, of government and law and legislation. Good. I, uh, a very positive note for us to sort of uh, to noodle on here, I think. Um, but, but I agree. I mean, it, it, it can't always be an attempt to sort of, I guess, boil the ocean if um, Right, and if that seems overwhelming, then yes, to work in with what we can do. Um, so maybe you can share a bit more about your own work, uh, Javid. Um, you know, what resources can you share with our listeners um, that you've identified that might help address the structural stigma, um, and you you can share with others that might want to to follow. So I would start by saying that um, there's really two two big lessons from the research that I've done. The first came when very early on, we did what you and I described earlier, we held up the mirror, mm -hmm. health professionals. We confronted them with some of their biases about people with mental illness. And what we found was that many like me struggled with that, right? Because first response was, well, we can't possibly have biases because we're professionals and we're objective. And that's what professionals do. But we're also human, and of course we have biases because biases are human. That finding was really powerful because it highlighted that there's something about the healthcare context that actually encourages us to somehow compartmentalize ourselves as personal and professional, as humans versus not humans. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important finding because if we don't recognize that there's something about the way we function that actually is dehumanizing ourselves, then how do we ever expect to humanize each other or address the biases we might have about other people? That's why 
the work that we do has to be framed around an understanding that we can strive to be our best, but we have to be able to embrace the fact that we're vulnerable and be open about that because we are going to stumble, we are going to struggle, and we are going to make mistakes. That kind of space and grace is an essential ingredient to addressing any form of discrimination or prejudice. The second lesson is when we shifted into the um, into the structural space. So to understand that, what I would say is that it's not enough to, to hold up the mirror to ourselves and think about how we're going to make change. Because if all we're doing is raising awareness, we're actually not making change, right? If you go and you tell someone who's working really hard and trying their best, hey, you might be part of discrimination despite your best intentions, um, what we found from our research is that actually increases a sense of helplessness and frustration. But the secret is when you look at what you can do differently, how you can change your behavior, and then role modeling that behavior for others and changing what you do rather than just raising awareness about the problem that the magic happens. And that's what we found is that um, you hold up the mirror, people understand it, but then you say, all right, let's now talk about what could look different in your context. How can you lean into this frustration, lean into this complexity, but also not just think critically about your biases, but the biases that are baked into the system. And we found that in our research as well, that people then began talking more openly about it and co-creating change. Those are the two main, main examples, but if I have a, an opportunity, I also want to talk about a study where we looked at how organizations also do this. This came out recently as a, an implementation guide through the Mental Health Commission of Canada, where we really looked at what is the theory of change? How do organizations dismantle structural stigma? And what that work highlighted is before you do anything, you need to have a shared understanding of the problem need to articulate a clear vision for your desired change, and you need to align values across a diverse set of partners. That means you may not agree on everything, but you need to have uh, be lockstep in, with one another around your values and how you're going to pay for that change. From there, you have to have attention to building and sustaining trust, redistributing asymmetrical power relationships, and really measuring and monitoring outcomes. The difference between organizations that are successful at this and organizations that struggle is that organizations who build capacity and support for disruptive forms of change and who actively and proactively anticipate and manage resistance to change um, are ones that are successful. And those organizations also proactively seek feedback and embed that change into existing structures. Wow. Uh... I would love to explore that in more detail, um, but maybe another topic for conversation, because I think there's a lot in there and because um, I'm struck by how, you know, you know, that can be applied to so many other leadership lessons or um, opportunities that, you know, about any other kinds of change initiatives, um, perhaps not just the, the mental health and the de destigmatizing um, efforts as well, but um so yeah, uh, really interesting work. Well, I think the, the difference that's subtle to understand is 
that there's always going to be resistance to change. Change Management 101 speaks to some of this, mm -hmm. but when the change is actually changing the norm and challenging the system to rethink what it believes is normal, it's a different kind of disruption. It's both qualitatively different and the degree of disruption is greater, which means that it engenders a different and more amplified kind of resistance. So those two issues, managing disruptive change and anticipating and managing resistance, then become much more focused and strategic for an organization to move that change into the direction because of the nature of um, trying to tackle uh, various forms of discrimination or prejudice through that change. But very powerful, right? I think if you can embed that knowledge within an organization and a leadership um, in terms of the potential that it, it can create um, for, you know, the change as you described, but in terms of the, right, the, the, the wellness of the organization and the people who work within it. It is. It is. So we actually just had a paper published this week, um, very, very recently, and it essentially um, describes how uh, organizations approach sensitive conversations about things like microaggressions. And what was really interesting was that people's ability to talk about this issue was related to their perception of how responsive and constructively their organization was addressing the issue mm -hmm. and their perception about their role within the hierarchy and their perceived power in that organization. So what that means is that to create this kind of change, we need to create sharing of trust. Mm -hmm. We need to create sharing of power and, and be more egalitarian in how we view power as something distributed. But we also need to be honest about existing asymmetries of power, which are in all systems. We're not always going to be in a completely democratized consensus-based model. And therefore, there needs to be a radical candor and transparency about the kinds of power differentials that exist that may not be able to be mitigated, that can exist without being distracted by them at the same time. Yeah, but you're, I mean, you're also part of that is, is, um, an equation as it relates to perhaps engagement itself. Right. And, and, um, you know, why people are engaged and how they stay engaged. And also um, what it means for different people in the room. Yeah. Right. So let's just turn it back onto this fee for service issue that many of my Canadian healthcare colleagues are familiar with. Mm -hmm. If um, your, uh, you know, physician is asked to participate in an activity, but they're not actually compensated for the time to be on that committee, and there's someone else who's salaried uh, who's on that committee, then both people will engage differently. Because mm -hmm. for one, there's maybe actually a structural disincentive for their meaningful participation. The same way that if in a healthcare organization, you create uh, opportunities for discourse or dialogue or change management, some members of the, the organization have the time the indirect protective time to participate and others are so busy providing clinical care or coordinating clinical care that they can't, then you're actually not allowing everybody to participate and engage in a, in an equitable way. 
it's insidious, I guess these uh, right these structures right that that uh, that and barriers right that are that um, for participation access so many as uh, aspects of that. They're ubiquitous, but at the same time we can work to mitigate them and, mm -hmm. and realign incentives. But it's also really just important to be honest about them. You know, when we do a lot of our youth engagement or youth co-creation work. We, be, we are always honest about what the cost is for participation, um, what the intrinsic and extrinsic motivation might be for people to be in the room. And we have to be intentional about talking about the way that power and privilege shows up in those activities, because without having the conversation, um, you're really missing that opportunity for authentic and meaningful engagement. Lots to discuss, um, um, but I'll keep moving us along because I know that we're going to quickly run out of time if I don't. So, um, so I mean, you've been talking a little bit about you know our health systems and health system transformation at a strategic level. I think uh, part of the, this study, I think, sort of fits into that. But you know, where does what you're describing sort of, I guess, fit into in th those parts that are at a you know at those strategic levels of an organization, um, you know, whether that be at the executive level, maybe it's uh, governance um, or are within other decision um, authorities. Um, you know, how do you change these systems that have grown up, you know, for, you know, for centuries really to be what they are? I mean, they, they didn't happen sort of by accident. I mean, we may not have intended them, but you know, systems evolve for reasons. So, you know, where do you where do you get to this change and um, at that strategic level? Yeah, so there's a methodology that many of us as health leaders are familiar with. We often engage in various forms of strategic and operational planning, right? Mm -hmm. That methodology technically could be something that we apply. But the challenge is we're not always doing it in a very inclusive way. We tend to do it in a very self-serving way for us as organizations, for us as leaders. The kind of disruptive change management I'm talking about really is disruptive. If something has been gone on as normal for more than a century, there's a disruption that's in, inherent to challenging it to think differently. And in Canada, we have a lot of denialism and avoidance. We think of ourselves as well-intentioned people. So the disruption that comes from, wow, we're actually creating or causing harm. Um, through stigma or through racism is a big one. It's, it's a very sensitive one for Canadians. The problem, though, is that some people are, approach disruptive change with the idea that we need to constantly be dismantling and disrupting and burning it all down. And that also can be very counterproductive. It hijacks the brain. It leads to the amygdala firing. It limits our opportunity for engagement, for dialogue. So I think of moving forward for organizations uh, towards transformation as this kind of dialectic, two things coexisting, holding disruption in one hand and holding dialogue in the other. And to give an example for folks, in my organization, we're a mental health organization, we're really looking at changing the way we provide care, moving towards care that's co-designed, care that's less coercive, care that's much more um, embracing of the power of healing and community. That's a very disruptive for folks who believe that um, some of the care that might be very coercive that they provide is in the best interest of the patient. 
So in addition to what we do operationally, um, the alignment of values, the articulation of our vision and our plan, we've also created dialogue groups for members of the community to come together in forms of dialogic learning to actually talk about what it's like for them as humans to confront the kinds of fear and anxiety and distress that comes from um, both being aware of the need for change while um, feeling like there's something of you invested in the status quo. So creating systems that allow people to hold dialogue and disruption in each hand as you move forward, I think is, is the key. So, and some parallels, I guess, of part of what you had been sharing earlier then around, right, the, that intentionality around creating spaces for conversations and the, right, hold, using, right, to hold up that mirror and then, and the potential, the, the fragility of that's going to be associated with some of that feedback as it, as we receive it. And, and that leads to the, some of that co-design. It, it does, but it also speaks to the role of the leader in that dialogue. Mm -hmm. And recognizing that sometimes as leaders, maybe we shouldn't be there. Maybe we should not create a system where people are afraid or, or attuned to our structural power and our reaction. Um, and if we're there, then we should be very deliberate to say we're participating in this dialogue as a member of a community, the same as everyone else, not with our title. What it also means is it requires us to change our views of leadership as something from being a form of power hoarding, where we hold power and decision-making consolidated to something more egalitarian, where we distribute it, where we engage in deliberative problem solving, where we ensure that members of our leadership team are part of um, the ambassadors for change, and that we create space for their development and um, um, professional and personal development as well. People who might be managers or directors, right, within a complex system, um, they often get neglected in these, these processes because there might be change articulated from one side and pressure articulated from the other. And having been a sort of middle manager in healthcare, it squeezes you, right? It yeah. creates heat and pressure. So we have to recognize as leaders where we fit within a hierarchy uh, and the fact that sometimes, despite our best intentions, we might not be, uh, our, our presence might make it hard for some people to share what they want to share and that some of the people that we've tapped on the shoulder to be part of our journey might need support and um, kindness from us as they work through some of their own processes as well. Very good advice. Um, and then, so yeah, my, my next question was gonna be about, you know, your advice for our health system leaders, um, more broadly speaking, I think you've covered a bunch of that just now, but would there be anything else that you would want to sort of, you know, provide a support for those people who are maybe in, you know, those, those hot pressure filled sort of moments um, and how to they continue to um, affect the change that we would aspire to. And so I'll share, you know, distill it all down to my three simple rules that inform how I, I am as a leader. Um, and then one sort of secret ingredient to those three rules. The first is whatever we do has to be about enhancing agency and choice. Mm -hmm. Um, again, sharing power rather than hoarding power. Number two, we have to share humanity, and that means role modeling, vulnerability, and humility. Um, being very visible and visible and intentional 
about showing up as vulnerable human beings and creating systems where people uh, are, aren't punished for being human. And mm -hmm. the third is co-design, right? Sharing power through co-design, building trust, and really um, co-constructing change. But all of this is only possible if we as leaders, as humans, have compassion for it. Now, one thing that's missing from so much of what we do is the, the active and deliberate um, need for self-compassion. We all, you know, high-performing folks, leaders like us, we hold ourselves to high standards. We can sometimes be self-punitive, and we live in a world that pushes us towards self-doubt um, and, and guilt and shame. So we need to practice being nicer to ourselves. Um, when we see that flawed and vulnerable leader in the mirror, it's about embracing ourselves, celebrating what makes us who we are, and actively practicing um, self-forgiveness and self-validation, reminding ourselves that we're we're doing the best we can. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are three great uh, rules, and, and you're... you're sort of uniter or compassion of that sauce that sort of fits it all together as, a, as advice for us all. I am struck by the, you know, the, the, the challenge around self-compassion or the absence of it sort of lends itself perhaps to, right, I've more of a suit of armor than that we end up um, wearing um, that inhibits some of the other um, compartments or, or uh, that you sort of described. I mean, if we can't, if we can't be compassionate with ourselves and we provide perhaps more a front of, of, um, a strength, um, and invulnerability. Um, so yeah. And the world isn't going to make it any easier. So, you know, in a world that is pushing and in promoting and amplifying dehumanization and cruelty and silencing in various shapes and forms, really anchoring ourselves to a shared sense of humanity and um, accepting that if we're doing the best that we can, we don't have to carry the weight of, uh, of the problems and of the world on our shoulders. Mm -hmm. um, we can accept that we're part of a world or a system that can create harm while um, recognizing that we're doing our best to make it better at the same time. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, a, you know, a message of hope as we start the new year here. Um, so maybe any other last words um, that you'd like to share, uh, Dr. Sakara, on the topic and, you know, for our listeners in terms of how they, they navigate this f through whatever journey that they might be on? Well, I, I hope that folks that are listening have felt some, some resonance to what I've shared. Um, it is not easy to be a leader. It is not easy to be a healthcare leader. Um, but at the end of the day, many of us do this because we believe in wanting to be part of making something better. And um, we couldn't just imagine not being a part of, of changing the world. So I think we should honor ourselves. We should celebrate what we do. We should make it easy on ourselves as we start a new year. Um, but we also need to remember that we were never meant to do this work alone. Mm -hmm. And we should find our supports, our community, 
um, people that allow us to, to learn and grow and uh, validate us uh, to be our colleagues in a community of change makers as we move forward. Um, in addition to the fact that there's tons of resources through the Mental Health Commission that uh, folks can access, including both the e-learning course and our new implementation guide. Thank you. So some just an absolutely great way to, to start this year. Um, a, a great gift um, of your time and your wisdom and your research and your knowledge. So thank you very much for sharing that with all of us. Um, and uh, yeah, I wish you a great year yourself and uh, as you go forward. Thanks so much. Thanks, everyone. You've been listening to The HQ, and I'm Dale Sherbeck, your host. You can find this and other future episodes on the CHA Learning website, Apple Podcasts, or Spotify. We'd love to hear what you think, so please follow us on our other social media channels. Thanks for joining us in this discussion today. Please join us next time.